what a roller coaster we've all been on these past few weeks. I mean, my emotions have been all over the place, up and down, in and out, sideways, sometimes changing direction without warning. Brandy Miller, whose husband Matt was one of our seminary interns a number of years ago, she wrote this this week about how she was feeling. I thought it was good. She said, one minute I feel grateful for all the family time and a slower pace, and the next moment I feel sadness about the significant loss around me. I feel fear about our financial future one minute, and then a wave of contentment crashes around me at the simple ways our family is experiencing joy. I feel concerned about my parents, in-laws, and other precious older friends, and then thankfulness for another family meal around our table. Thankfulness for our family meal gives way to feelings of guilt and concern as I think about children a few miles away that may not have had lunch today. My thoughts and my feelings have been overwhelming. If I'm honest, I am right there with her, trying to understand all this information that's being dumped on us and then to hopefully have the wisdom to know, well, what do you do with all this information? What do you do personally? What do I do for my family? What do I do for the church? What do I do for our larger community? And often with confusion comes doubt. When I'm anxious, when I'm uncertain or just confused, I begin to doubt. I doubt myself. I doubt the government, doubt our medical leaders. I even begin to doubt God. And doubt can open the door to sadness and even depression. I keep going back to that first chapter of the New Testament book of James, where he tells us that God wants to give us the wisdom we need for these confusing times. But then James goes on to say, chapter 1, verse 6, that when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. And I realize that's me. That is me. I'm the wave being tossed about by the wind, tossed around by all the questions and concerns I have, like when will I ever go to a restaurant again, or when will we be able to shake hands with a friend, or when will commuters commute, or students study in an actual classroom? I have a lot of questions and a lot of doubts. Now, I don't feel condemned or chastised by this verse. I feel described. A wave blown and tossed by the wind. I feel described. Maybe you feel that way, too. We are all sailing in these uncharted waters, and we are all being tossed around by wind and waves. Storms are a part of life. We know that, that there are always unexpected things that build uncertainty, even chaos, into our normal routine. But I do think it's interesting to see how often the Bible uses storms as a metaphor for life itself. How often people encounter God in the midst of a storm. What I want to do this morning and for the next few weeks is to look at some of the different storm stories in the Bible to see what they might say to us about how we're going to face the storms of our lives. What we're going to see is that in all of these storm stories, there's this three-step pattern for how God works. Three steps. There's a storm, there's a human response, and then there's a stillness brought by God himself. So it's storm, human response, and stillness. Our first story is from the Gospel of Mark chapter 4, starting with verse 35. I love this story. It goes like this. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. And so leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with them, and a furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And Jesus was sleeping on a cushion in the stern. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up, he rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Be quiet, be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. 
He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Amen. I love that story. I see myself in that boat so many times. It's just such a simple story, so straightforward, a long day. Jesus has been out in public teaching, healing, answering questions. He's kind of been with the crush of people nonstop. Maybe for a few days that's been going on. So he's dog tired and bone weary. And he's used up, drained of all his strength. And, you know, sometimes we forget Jesus fully accepted the limitations of his physical body. He was fully human. He didn't use any divine steroids to boost his energy. No cosmic Red Bull to give himself superhuman strength. No, he was exhausted. He just needed to lie down. As soon as his head hits the cushion, it was lights out. The disciples, you know, they set out in a small boat across the lake, which is also called the Sea of Galilee. Now, that's a big lake. It's about the size of Lake Winnipesaukee in, in area in New Hampshire. Many of the disciples, they lived and worked on the water. They were kind of like the crab boat fishermen off the Chesapeake Bay. And so they knew the water. They were comfortable there. They were experienced fishermen. They respected the power of the water, but they also thought they could handle it. But this time, they couldn't. A sudden squall comes up. The waves start crashing over the gunnels, and soon they were up to their ankles in water. Now, this is really important because squalls were very frequent on these waters. Happened all the time. Squalls were just a natural occurrence. They weren't a punishment sent from God to test the faith of the disciples. They were not Satan's handiwork. Nature is indifferent to whether or not there are any boats on the lake. You put together the right combination of wind and temperature and air pressure and all the rest, and you're going to have a storm. Squalls were not evil. There's nothing malicious or malevolent happening here. It's just nature. As human beings, you know, we like to attach meaning to events in our lives. It helps us to cope with the stress. It helps us to feel like we're getting the upper hand, or maybe if we can name it or put it into a category, we can control it. I've heard too many preachers saying that this COVID virus is a punishment from God for our immoral society and how far we've wandered from God's truth. Well, yes, we are an immoral society in many ways, and yes, we have wandered from God's truth, but that doesn't automatically mean God is whipping out some plagues on us like he did for old Pharaoh in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. It's just as likely that God's bringing down judgment on false preachers who distort the word of God. I think we just need to be really careful about projecting our opinions or feelings as spiritual truth as though we have some secret inside information from the Almighty about what's going on. I'm sorry to say this, but often it's Christians who are the most gullible when it comes to conspiracy theories and end-time scenarios. I just think it's real important to remember that every Christian teacher, every preacher, for the last 2,000 years, everyone who's made some kind of apocalyptic declaration, they've been 100% wrong. Every single one. And they bring a lot of grief and dishonor upon the gospel because their folly allows unbelievers to kind of just write them off as kooks and then categorically dismiss anything whatsoever about Jesus and their own need for salvation. So when it comes to the COVID virus, let's all take a big dose of humility and recognize that nature happens. Now, there's certainly human interaction and activity involved in the spread of the virus, but let's be careful about attaching any divine causation, okay? Storms happen on the Sea of Galilee. So the boys in the boat, they're bailing like crazy, and someone remembers Jesus is in the back of the boat. They go back, Jesus, wake up. Don't you care that we're drowning? 
I mean, have you ever felt that way? Like, where are you, God? Why don't you do something to help me? Why don't you uh, do something? Of course, they may have really been thinking, Jesus, grab a bucket, man. You've got two hands. Start bailing like the rest of us. They weren't necessarily coming to Jesus in an act of faith. They were gripped by fear, and that's the first human response to a storm, fear. When you're in a storm, it's natural to focus your attention on what's right in front of you. The waves, the wind, the water, and the bigger the storm, the less likely you're able to see God in it. Storms create panic. Storms are an environment in which we're either going to lose our lives or we're going to be saved. There's no safe ledge on which to perch as a spectator. There's no bleachers from which to just kind of enjoy watching the lightning and the thunder. The, when you're in it, nothing else matters. It's life or death. Whatever else has been on your agenda, no more. And when you focus on the immediate crisis, it's easy to forget about the God who loves you and who cares about you. Think of the question that they asked Jesus. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? I mean, let those words sink in for a moment. There are waves crashing, hope is being lost, and they question whether or not Jesus cares for them. And it's a fair question. They don't ask him to stop the waves. They don't ask him to calm the storm. Their question is actually a lot deeper. Where is your love for us at this moment? Their fear has justifiably given risen to doubt, and they need Jesus to affirm that he cares for them. The storm is too much. Whenever something overwhelming happens in our lives, when waves of suffering or death or any kind of trauma come crashing around us, our first inclination is to question God and question his goodness. That's just part of being human. In my 40 years of ordained ministry or so, I've seen all kinds of very precious people, people dearly loved by God who have had to weather storms of every possible imaginable grief. People who have screamed out at God in anger, sadness, disbelief because of a loss that they've had to endure. And all you can do at that point is just hold their hand or offer an embrace of love or just be with them in their pain. Questioning God, that is a normal response to abnormal situations. But we serve a God who says it's okay. It's okay for us to ask those kinds of difficult questions. I mean, just read the Psalms. They are full of deep, painful questioning. And God preserved them as scripture for us because he wants his children to know it's okay. When you're in pain, it is okay to question God. He can handle it. Fear and questioning, we often add something else. We often add the very human response of frantic activity. Whatever's going on, we redouble our efforts. We try harder, work faster, and there's something to be said for this. I mean, in a crisis, new energy can emerge. New ideas are born. There's innovation. People work together like never before. Great things can be accomplished because of the crisis. But the storm described for us in Scripture can sometimes confront us with a deeper, more uncomfortable reality that there are forces larger than us at work. And all our human efforts may be useless in the face of such natural power. Isn't that part of our struggle now? If there was only something we could do. If you're a medical professional, well then you are involved in doing in such an important way. You're taking care of the sick. You're helping to keep others from getting sick. And we thank you so much for that and for all the sacrifices you're making. But for the rest of us, we're not in emergency rooms, and we can't be. We'd only be in the way. And so much of our frustration is that because we, we feel helpless, we feel anxious because there's nothing to do. Besides wearing a mask and gloves when we go to for groceries, I mean, what else are we supposed to do? 
we're used to doing something to solve problems, and the social distancing is just sort of the opposite of that. And so no, no wonder we start to pace around our homes like caged animals, like in that Tiger King documentary. We feel so small. Herman Melville wrote that famous novel, Moby Dick. It tells the story of a sea captain's obsession with trying to kill the great white whale. There's a scene in the novel when the whaling ship is out on the Atlantic, they're hunting whales, when one of the smaller harpoon boats gets separated from the mother ship and the men are going to have to ride out the entire night in that little bitty boat out on the vast ocean, unsure if the mother ship is ever going to find them. They're lost out on the dark and turbulent sea. And Melville writes this. He writes, The wind increased to a howl. The waves dashed their bucklers together. The whole squall roared, forked, and crackled around us like white fire upon the prairie, in which, we, in which unconsumed we were burning, immortal in these jaws of death. And then they hold up this makeshift lantern, hoping that the mother ship will spot it. And he writes, Queequeg is the standard bearer of this forlorn hope. There then he sat, holding, that in, holding up that imbecile candle in the heart of that almighty forlornness. There then he sat, the sign and symbol of a man without faith, hopelessly holding up hope in the midst of darkness. You can sense how alone they are, how insignificant, irrelevant they are to this enormous swelling ocean. They're so small. Perhaps you felt that way if you stood on a beach and gazed out across the vastness of the ocean, or maybe if you stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon. You're so small compared to the power of nature. There was nothing these men in the boat could do to save themselves, and Melville describes them as a symbol of men without faith, caught in a futile attempt to go through the storms of life without God. You know, at some point we've got to reach the place where we say there isn't anything we can do except turn to God. In fact, that ought to be the first thing we do. It ought to be our first instinctive response to turn to the Lord. But, hey, we're slow learners. We always need to remember is that no matter how big the storm, it is never bigger than God. No matter how powerful the fear, God is more powerful still. This kind of extreme trouble, this storm trouble, it strips away, leaves us with only the basics, forces us a reduction what is really important. Storms are not just bad weather, they also expose our inner lives. And what we finally find is we have a choice. We can either respond to the storm with fatalistic thinking or we can respond with faith. Fatalism means living without hope. It means giving up. It means giving in to circumstances, giving in to your anxiety, giving in to, to chance, to despair. But faith means we hold on tightly to a God who loves us and who is with us in the storm. We find that between the storm and the stillness, God is right there. God is there. It's a great verse in another Old Testament prophet of hope, Nahum chapter 1 verse 3, that says, the way of the Lord is in the whirlwind and the storm. The way of the Lord is in the whirlwind and the storm. God meets us in the storm. He's not abandoned us. He is there. Faith means accepting that our lives are held in God's strong hands no matter how fierce the wind is blowing or how high the waves. God keeps his promises. So there's the storm, then there's the human response, and then there's Jesus. And Jesus is so casual. I mean, he's so tired. It's like someone sleeping through a train wreck. I mean, he is in deep, deep, full REM sleep. He's so asleep. He's practically in a coma. The disciples are yelling at him, shaking him, trying to get him to wake up. And I sort of picture it as though 
you know how hard, what it's like when you're waking up from a sleep. You can't quite figure out what's going on. There's chaos around. You can't make out what the disciples are, are yelling about. The wind is so loud. And I just sort of imagine Jesus waking up in this kind of confused way and just saying, be quiet, wind and waves. I can't understand what these guys are talking about. And both Mark and Matthew record, as they record the story in their Gospels, both of them say the sea became perfectly calm. Instantly perfectly calm. Like glass, that is not a natural occurrence at all. The storms didn't just stop. Storms usually leave choppy seas in their wake. They don't just stop out automatically, the waves. It takes time for the waters to settle down, but not this time. Boom, the curtain came down, so quiet. So eerily unusual, the disciples have to ask between trembling lips, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? It's like just a little thumbnail of God's power came out. And they've never seen anything like it before. In all their combined years as a fisherman, no one's ever come up with a tall tale like this one. There's no fable, no fairy tale. They had never seen anything like this. It was like a little bit of Christ's power came out. The disciples then experience Christ's presence in a way that both terrifies them and saves them simultaneously. They sense this awesome, powerful kind of otherness of Jesus while also experiencing grace and protection. What a question. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? When I was in seminary in the Boston area, Don and I both worked at Park Street Church in downtown Boston right off the Capitol, uh, right near the Capitol building on the, on the Boston Common. It was a great church. Loved it there. I was a high school youth director. We had a large ministry of students from 22 high schools in the metropolitan Boston area. And I got to know a little bit about the storied history of Park Street Church, going all the way back to colonial days. In 1835, a New England preacher by the name of Lyman Beecher spoke at Park Street. You've probably never heard of Lyman Beecher unless you're one of our elders, Jonathan Sassy, who's a college professor and specializes in that area of American history. Uh, Lyman Beecher was actually quite well known in New England, and his two children both became very famous. His daughter, Harriet Beecher Stowe, she wrote that classic novel of the anti-slavery movement, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And his son, Henry Ward Beecher, became sort of, I don't know, the Joel Olstein of his day, spoke to record-breaking crowds all across the United States. So Lyman Beecher gave a series of messages at Park Street Church called Lectures on Skepticism. Sort of an early version of Ravi Zacharias and his work in dealing with modern skeptics. But there's one line in here that really stood out to me when I first read it, a line that I underlined, a line that I've kept close to my heart all these years. One line that sums up everything about this passage from the Gospel of Mark that you'll ever need to know. One line for you to remember and recite maybe when you're facing uncertain storms in your life, when the waves are starting to crash over the deck, when chaos seems to be winning and you think you have actually reached your limit. This is what Lyman Beecher said. Who but Christ can speak efficaciously to the waves of such an unquiet sea? Who but Christ can speak efficaciously to the waves of such an unquiet sea? I love his poetic turn. Who else has the power to, to calm the anxious waves in your life? No one but Jesus. Who else can speak effectively to the chaos in your soul or in our world? Only Jesus. When he speaks, peace rushes in. He calms the waves. He stills the storm. He brings peace to you, to your heart. Who but Christ can speak efficaciously to the waves of such an unquiet sea? Storm, human response, and stillness. 
For most of us, we live in between the storm and the stillness. We live with the water crashing over the deck and water up to our ankles. Between the storm and the stillness is actually where we wrestle with God. We cry out. We question. We doubt. It's where our faith is stretched and strengthened. What we need to remember is that it's at that precise moment when the storm seems to be the loudest that God wants to speak to you most clearly. Between the storm and the stillness is where God is most active, even when he might seem most hidden. And you can trust him that he is going to speak peace over the storms that you will face this week. I don't know what's going to happen this week, but I knew there, know that Christ is already there. He's already in the middle of our storms of emotion, our storms of what's happening in our country. Whatever is going on, Jesus is already there. And he's got enough power to say, peace, be still. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this simple story. Thank you that it was preserved for us so we'd be able to learn from it, to learn about how you can just speak so powerfully with such great effect to all the storms, all the worries, all the anxieties, all the fears, all the desperation that we might be feeling. Lord, you have the power to speak to our hearts. And we just pray that we'd lean on you this week. Open our hearts to everything that you would teach us in the midst of the storm. Help us to speak peace into the lives of other people, Lord, who are anxious or fearful. And help them to know that you are Jesus, the, the Almighty, the Powerful, the Risen One, who can speak peace into our hearts. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.